Please open up your Bibles with me to Joel chapter 2. That will be our scripture reading for our sermon today. In Joel chapter 2, I will be reading the first 16 verses. These are the words of God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread among, upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale, like warriors they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent, and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. May God bless the preaching of his word. Pray with me today as we come to this word of God. Our God, how grateful we are to be able to come and to receive your word. How grateful we are that you have revealed it to us. And as we come to it this morning, we would ask for your help to understand it as you have revealed it, as you have intended it, and to not just understand it in our minds, but Father, to have our minds renewed by it, focused by it, on the greatness of your glory and your grace and your mercy and your steadfast love towards us. 
Father, that our lives might be transformed by this word, that you might continue the work that you have begun in us of conforming us into the very image of the glory of Jesus Christ, that more and more and more we might please you in our lives. And so, Father, we come to you and we ask for this help and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, as we jumped into the book of Joel together, we saw in chapter 1 the setting of this great book of Old Testament prophecy. And the setting of this book was the massive invasion, you remember, of locusts, insects that tore through the entire nation of Judah, devouring and destroying everything in their path and devastating the lives of everyone and everything in the land. And in chapter 1, we heard the message of God loud and clear that in the midst of catastrophe in this world, in the midst of calamity in our lives, God beckons his people to cry out to him. And we saw that cultivating a habit in our lives of drawing near to God regularly, and specifically by doing that together, corporately, like we're doing this morning, gathering and assembling together as a regular practice of the people of God, that habit tunes our hearts to cry out to Him in our times of great need. When we're focused away from Him, when we're focused on the things of life that are hard instead of on Him, when we're focused on self and fixated on the circumstances themselves, when we can't see past what's going on in the world around us and how we feel about all of that and see past all of that to the great objective realities of God's sovereign purpose in those things and his holy goodness in the things even that are so painful for our lives, when we're, when we're not focused on him, then when trials come, we cry out, but not to him. Our crying out is, is the kind of crying out that is full of self-pity and bitterness and grumbling and despair. But when the, when the habit of our minds and hearts is to be focused on him, His majesty, His sovereign authority, His almighty power, His perfect wisdom, His unchanging goodness and faithfulness. Then more and more when trials come and when painful circumstances happen, our aching hearts can find rest through casting our cares on Him who always cares for us. And it's It's gathering together, it's assembling together, as we saw last week, at the foot of the throne of our gracious God, which cultivates this focus, this instinct to rest in Him in every high and stormy gale, as the words of the hymn go, right? Because we know that He is our solid rock and that in Him our anchor holds within the veil. Crying out to God was the message of chapter 1. Today, in chapter 2, the prophet takes us another step and teaches us that while crying out to God, especially in times of 
trial and difficulty, while that's so essential, it's not enough. In crying out to God and making our requests known to God, we also need to be hearing Him, listening to Him. And in chapter 2 now, the message that God is speaking to His people, to us, is this, that the one central purpose that He wants us to focus on today of disaster and catastrophe in this world is to sound the alarm that people in this world need to return to Him. Disasters, catastrophes, trials, tribulations, afflictions, suffering, sorrows don't happen by accident as we saw last week. They always serve a purpose and one of the central purposes is to sound the alarm that people need to turn to God. And as we'll see in this chapter, that cry of God for people to return to Him carries an eternal urgency which grows more and more and more urgent every single day. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. This is what the living God cries in verse 1 here of Joel chapter 2. So we're going to look at the first 16 verses of this chapter today. And in these verses there are two trumpets, two kinds of trumpet that God calls for his people to blow. One here in verse 1, which sounds an alarm, and then another one in verse 15, which is a different kind of a trumpet blast that summons the people to action. Trumpets were commonly used in this kind of a way for purposes like that in ancient worlds and societies. A certain number of trumpet blasts acted as sort of a, 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 an emergency broadcast system warning the people of the city of impending danger. And then another series of trumpet blasts would be used to send a different message and summon the people to come together for a certain purpose, for a particular course of action. And that's what God is saying in this chapter and in these verses. So here again, the context has been this national disaster that's fallen on the nation of Judah because of a massive invasion of locusts that has utterly devastated the land and the lifestyle of the entire nation. And so Joel is, Joel is watching this happen and unfold before his eyes. He's taking all of it in. He's absorbing all of the devastation all around him. He's watching these thick swarms of insects flying all around, thick and and blacking out the sun even. And as he sees all of that, he becomes convinced, and rightly so, according to the Word of God, he becomes convinced that everything that's going on in that circumstance, everything that was so profoundly catastrophic in that event, was actually just a portent of something else that was coming that would be far worse far more devastating, far more catastrophic on a cosmic, not just a national, but a cosmic scale and on an eternal scale. And so as Joel surveys the devastation, he proclaims this word of the Lord in verse 1, to blow a trumpet of warning because worse is on the way. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble 
for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. That phrase, the day of the Lord, is found about 20 times in the Old Testament all throughout the books of the prophets. And it's a reference to a a future coming time when the judgment of God will be poured out on the world and all of the nations of the world will be brought into account for all of the unrighteousness and all of the sin and all the godlessness that is in the world. So it's not just a day where God's justice is manifested in general ways. It's the day when all of the fullness of God's holy, righteous judgment will be unleashed on the world. Twenty times the prophets speak of this throughout the Old Testament, and then the New Testament picks up this same phrase, the day of the Lord, from the prophets in the Old Testament, and the New Testament fills it out with more specific detail and reveals to us specifically who the Lord is, the day of the Lord. Who is the Lord? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament tells us what specifically will take place on his day, on the day of the Lord. The Lord is none other than than the Lord Jesus himself, and there is a coming day, the New Testament makes clear, future still to us, when he will come when he will pour out all of the fullness of the judgment of God who he is on the whole world. And when he does, the devastation that that judgment will bring will absolutely overshadow the devastation of the locust invasion that Joel was witnessing. And it will do that on scales that are both cosmic and eternal. Peter's description of the coming day of the Lord, which we read earlier. 2 Peter chapter 3 is probably the most familiar and the most sobering, the most terrifying description of the day of the Lord that the New Testament spells out. It will come like a thief, Peter says, suddenly, when people aren't expecting it. And then the heavens themselves will pass away with a roar. He's talking about the skies that we see above us that are filled with stars. He's talking about planets and stars and galaxies. They will pass away with the roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth that we live on and the works that are done will be exposed to the fullness of the judgment of God. And on that day, the day of the Lord, it won't just be the crops in one nation that will be decimated. It won't just be the fruit of the vine and the oil like we saw last week and the wine that will will go away and be devastated. It'll literally be the entire created order, planets, stars, galaxies, all of them will be dissolved, Peter says, and will pass away with a roar, consumed, destroyed by the coming judgment of God on the coming day of the Lord when Jesus Christ returns. He came once already, of course, right? We just celebrated that at Christmas. The first coming, the first advent of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, when he came 2,000 years ago as a Savior, 
not as a judge, to give his own life as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice to save to the uttermost everyone who believes on him, everyone who calls on his name for salvation, everyone who turns from their sin and comes to him will be saved from the coming judgment, the coming wrath of God on the day of the Lord. Everybody who comes to Christ will find eternal rest, will be delivered when Jesus returns in his second advent in order to make an eternal end of all evil and all wickedness and all godlessness in the world. So what God is saying is now is the favorable time, right? He's coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Now, until that day, is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's great patience. Now is the time when he's calling people everywhere to turn to him, to repent, to come to him through faith in Christ Jesus and find eternal life and rest. But every single day, the day of his second coming, the day of the Lord, draws nearer and nearer, and with it, the outpouring of the fullness of the judgment and wrath of God gets closer and closer. This day which the Old Testament prophets spoke of as the coming day of the Lord. And the prophets, like Joel, in all of their understanding and all of their confidence that the Lord God Almighty is in full all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign control over every aspect of creation, over all of history, because he decreed the beginning from the end. The prophets know that every single present difficulty in this world, like the locust storm, like these storms, like whatever storms your life is being pounded by, Every single calamity and catastrophe and trial and affliction and suffering in this sin-cursed world is a God-ordained precursor, is a divine foreshadowing, is a, is, a, is a providentially ordered birth pang, to use the words that Jesus uses, which anticipates this coming day of the Lord. And so as we feel them, we're not supposed to become overwhelmed with despair and start complaining and bickering and groaning against God. We're supposed to do something else, and Joel tells us what. This is Joel's perspective in chapter 2. The locust invasion was bad. We saw last week, right? Really, really bad. One for the ages. But nothing compared to what's coming, to what lies ahead. And knowing that, Joel, with his focus fixed on the purposes of God, he knows that the circumstances of, of his present distress, Judah's present distress, mean that trumpets need to be blown to warn people about what's coming and to call them into action. The first trumpet here is the warning blast, right? The day of the Lord is coming. Be aware that what you're going through now is a portent of the end. It's coming, and as Joel describes it, he shows how certain aspects of that coming day of the Lord are being mirrored by the, the locust plague that he's witnessing in his own day. Look at verses 2 and 3. This day of the Lord that he says is coming, it will be a day of darkness and gloom, like the locusts are blacking out the sun. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountain a great and powerful people, and their like has never been before. 
nor will be again after them through all the years and generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns, and the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them it's a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. That's what the locusts were doing, coming into a lush and beautiful land and stripping it bare. It's what the Assyrians will do when they invade the northern kingdom. They'll rip through it and tear it apart in the judgment of God. And it's what the final judgment of God will do to the entire created order. In verses 4 and 5, he talks about the appearance of the locusts in his day, right? And he's projecting all of that forward as a description of the agents of God's judgment who will come in and execute God's judgment leading up to the day of the Lord. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. And then he continues the description, summarizing here in verses 6 through 10. They become more vivid, they become more frightening, as Joel describes how the, the locusts of his day prefigure the coming judgments of God in the future and the anguish that will come with them. Now listen, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, God reveals a series of seven trumpets that will be blown, sounding the alarm all throughout the church age, all throughout the age from the time of Jesus' resurrection till the time of his return, alarm trumpets being blown, warning that the present evil and wickedness and all of the trials and sufferings of this present age are a manifestation of God's purposes of judgment in this world in, in increasing and escalating form which will lead up to the ultimate outpouring of judgment on the day of the Lord at the end. That day, a final judgment, is portrayed by the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation. The first six are leading up to it. They're warnings that it's coming. Now listen. Revelation chapter 9, listen to the description of the fifth trumpet and how similar it sounds to what Joel is describing here. God reveals that an angel's going to come and open up the shaft of the bottomless pit, which is a reference to the region of, of hell where the demons hail from. And from that place, smoke poured out. And then listen, verse 3 of Revelation 9, from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth, and they were told not to harm the grass, like the locusts in Joel's day, or any green plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, unbelievers. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, these locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads 
were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like a woman's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails, they sting, and they have a king over them who is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. You know what that's being, you know what's being described there in Revelation chapter 9? That's a, that's a description of the demonic forces of spiritual darkness that are unleashed in this world under the sovereign authority of God to bring torment to the lives of unbelievers who will not turn from their sin. And that's terrifying, isn't it? What the scriptures reveal is horrifying. Notice the similarities to what Joel is describing in chapter 2. They're like locusts with the appearance of horses, like an army in battle, teeth like lion's teeth, paralleling so much what Joel describes. Those demonic forces in Revelation 9, which are on the earth, which are around us now, which are causing all of the torment in this world now, are commanded by Satan, who, who's called a name in Hebrew and Greek that means destroyer. But ultimately, ultimately they're under the sovereign control of God Almighty. Their, their destruction and their destructiveness is limited. There's only so much that God will let them do. There's only so long that they're allowed to do it. And only in service to God's sovereign purposes just like the afflictions that God allowed Job to suffer. So this again, this is a massively central and significant part of the message that God is revealing in passages like these where he talks about the painful and calamitous things that happen in this world and in our lives. We saw this last week too. The hard circumstances, the brutal circumstances, they're not just results of chance or fate. They're not simply the impersonal forces of nature. And they're not even ultimately merely the result of the wicked intentions of people or evil beings in this world. Because ultimately behind it all is the sovereign hand of God who sits on his throne in heaven and does all that he pleases. You notice here in Joel chapter 2 that as he's describing this coming day of the Lord and all of the ways that the locust plague of his day prefigures it, notice as he describes the coming agents of divine judgment, which, which resemble locusts in his day in terms of their destructive power and the agony they cause, notice that as he refers to them as an army, that he says they're God's army. Look at verse 10 and 11. The earth quakes before them, the, tr the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, and who can endure it? You understand, the locusts in Joel's day, even the demonic forces of darkness in our day, for all of their rebelliousness, for all of their wicked intentions and destructiveness, are ultimately 
under the sovereign authority of the Most High God, who is working out his purposes even through them. There's no hope in this world if you don't believe that. If you don't believe God is sovereign over it, if you don't believe that there's some purpose in it, there's no hope and there's nowhere to turn. If the evil beings and the evil people and the horrible things are all autonomous from God's sovereign control, then there's no one to cry out to to put an end to it. You remember that all of the demonic forces of darkness, all of the satanic power that was active in the world during the days that Jesus walked on this earth, it was all arrayed against him, wasn't it? They raged against Christ. They worked through the the wicked hands of evil men to nail Christ to a cross. And ultimately, in all of that, God was working through them to accomplish his purposes, right? His purpose is to redeem you and me and everything in Christ Jesus. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. The locusts in Joel's day were ultimately God's locusts. And they were meant by God to prefigure those that would come and be used by God to work out his ultimate purposes of judgment in this world. And so Joel says, look, there's purpose behind it. That's why he says, blow the trumpets. Warn the nations, the day of the Lord is coming. Every single event that's difficult in the world signals the coming day of the Lord. So blow the trumpets. And when the day of the Lord comes, no one will be able to endure it. He who executes his word is very powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? That's a rhetorical question on the one hand, right? When the almighty, all-powerful God decides that enough is enough in this world, who can possibly withstand the fullness of, of the force of his judgments? No one can, right? Jeremiah says, the Lord is the true God, he is the living God, he is the everlasting king, and at his wrath the earth itself quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. No one can endure it. And yet, and yet, in the very next verse, verse 12, with all of this doom and gloom, this darkness is coming, this day of the Lord is coming, in the very next verse, God gives hope, right? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Those are some of the most beautiful, wonderful, merciful words you will ever hear. The day of the Lord is coming. It could come at any time he wants it to come. It could have come already. It could have come in Joel's day. He could have snapped his fingers and put an end to all of the wickedness in this world, but he's waiting. Not because he's slow, but because he's patient. But because he's merciful. But because his love is steadfast. Because he's gracious. Because he's slow not to keep his promise, but to anger. 
And he wants people to turn. He wants people to repent. He wants people to come. He wants people to be saved from what's coming. This is the other side of the coin. See, of the reality that God is sovereign over everything in the world, even the painful things. It's really important to know that, isn't it? Ultimately, God's purposes lie behind the most agonizing trials and afflictions in our lives. As important as it is to know that, it's every bit as important to know that He is, in the unchangeable perfection of His nature, in the purity of His character as God, He is gracious to give us things we don't deserve. He is merciful to not give us everything we do deserve. Now, I like to complain, do you? When I don't get things that I want, when things don't, my, my wife's always the first one to laugh really loud because she knows it's okay, it's true. I like to complain when things aren't going my way because I feel like I, I don't deserve this. Well, you know what I do deserve? I, I, I don't deserve any of this. You don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve the lights to be on. We don't deserve the houses we have. We don't deserve the eternal hope we've been given. And yet, how easily I complain when my generator runs out of gas. When the internet won't work. When people don't do what I want them to do. God is gracious to give what I don't deserve, and he's merciful to not give me what I do deserve eternally. He is slow to be angry with me. And he is abounding in steadfast love towards me because that's who he is. And what's truly remarkable here in these verses, in verse 12, is, is not just who he is, but what he does for those who turn to him. He relents over disaster. God relents. Now be careful in understanding what that does and doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God, who is unchangeable, it doesn't mean that he changes. His character, his nature, his affections, as we saw in the book of Hosea, his mind, his will, his purposes, are all perfect. Can't be improved upon, can't be taken away from, can't be added to or subtracted. They can't change. Everything about him is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, he's known, hasn't he, perfectly from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time. He's known with perfect knowledge everything that will happen. And he's known it because he's decreed it, the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46 says. Everything in between. He's not surprised by anything that goes on in your life or in this world, right? He wasn't surprised when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, was he? He wasn't like, what? what? I didn't think you'd do that. He knew, right? And his response to their sin wasn't something that he just sort of formulated right there on the spot. He already knew from eternity past what they would do and what he would do about it. Of course he did. He's God. But listen, think about what happened with Adam and Eve there in the garden. When they sinned, God asked questions, didn't he? God asked questions. They sinned and they hid themselves from him in their shame. And God said, where are you? Now, what do you think? You think he didn't know? 
Did the all-knowing God not know where they were? Adam answered, he said, well, because I was naked, I hid myself. And God asked, well, who told you you were naked? What do you think? You think God didn't know? Did God ask questions in order to find out something that he didn't understand or know? Of course not. Or else he's not really God. He asked questions not because he needed to learn the answers, but because they needed to learn the truth about their sin and about his righteousness and about his mercy. And God accommodated his communication about all of that to their humanness and asked questions. So the same thing is true in passages like this one where, where God talks to us in ways that are accommodated to our, our humanness and says that he does things like, like relent, like change his mind. And we're not supposed to think that he works the same way that we do, that his mind operates the same way that ours do, because his can't change. It's unlimited. It's perfect. We're not supposed to think that God is the same as us. We're supposed to learn how unfathomably holy and awesome he is. So, like the all-knowing God asking questions to Adam, the unchanging God says to people who will turn to him that he will relent of the disaster that his judgment has purposed since eternity past to be poured out on people who don't turn. So he doesn't mean that he changes, that his mind, that his purpose has changed. They can't, if they could, he, he wouldn't be perfect. But he is perfect. He speaks this way to finite people, imperfect people who do change so that we will change and turn from sin and turn to him because he judges sin and he gives mercy to those who turn away from it and turn to him. So, of course, don't get, don't get tied up in theological and philosophical knots here. Of course, God has always known who will and won't turn. Of course, God always knows who will and won't receive judgment or mercy. Of course, what he knows never changes. What he purposes never changes. Who he is never changes. But when he says to sinners that his judgment is coming for them, but that if they'll turn, the judgment will turn away from them, then by his grace, sometimes they turn. They change. They come to him and they find him to be the merciful, gracious, loving God who he unchangeably is. And that's what he's calling people to here. And the kind of change that the holy God wants, that he desires, that he requires, is anything but a superficial kind of a change. He's not just talking about changing the things that people do that are out of step with his will in terms of outside behavior. He's not talking about behavior modification. He's not just talking about outward conformity to the standards of living that he prescribes. He's talking about the heart. Return to me with all your heart, he says, because that's the core. That's the root. Everything that has gone wrong in this world and on the outside has come as a result of hard-hearted people on the inside. Hearts that are focused on self, on me, instead of on him. Hearts that don't love him. 
Hearts that don't trust Him. Hearts that want what self wants instead of wanting what honors and pleases Him. Hearts that deny His goodness and faithfulness when they don't have the things that they want, like my heart does so often. Those are the impulses of every human heart. That's where all sin comes from. And it's that hard-heartedness that the judgment of God is targeting and that in His mercy, He's calling people to turn from. Turn from not loving me. Turn from not trusting me. Turn from wanting it your way instead of being content with my way. Turn and be grateful. Turn and receive everything I give. Turn and give me praise. And I will lavish you with everlasting love. Rend your hearts, he says, and not your garments. Rending means tearing it. And tearing the garments was something that people did when they were absolutely overcome with grief and despair. A loved one died tragically. A horrible catastrophe happened. All hope seemed lost. And so they would weep and they would wail in their distress and they would rip their garments in anguish. And God says, do that with your heart. Tear wide open everything that is inside of you that loves self and sin more than it loves him, that doesn't trust him, that doubts him. Rip it all open. Confess it all to him. And he will give you mercy. And let him fill you with the abundance of his grace and love when he spares you from the judgments that is what we all actually deserve. And so, having blown this trumpet of warning in verse 1, focusing Judah on not just the trouble that they're having now, but the judgment that is coming, now, having mercifully called them to return to Him before it's too late in, in broken-hearted repentance and trust, now God tells Joel in verse 15 to blow another trumpet. And this one, this one summons them into action. And the action is worship. Worship. Blow the trumpet in Zion, verse 15, and consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble everyone, the elders, the children, Bring the nursing infants. This is important. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride leave her chambers. If you're in the midst of getting ready for a wedding, stop and come before the Lord and worship him. Last week we saw that in the midst of the most painful and catastrophic trials of life, this is what we need to do. God beckons his people to gather to assemble, to come together to Him, to focus beyond our earthly circumstances and beyond how we feel about them and together to focus on Him. Him who is always sovereign and holy and good so that we might learn and cultivate that attitude of trusting Him and resting in Him and praising Him no matter what's going on. So here again, God's given the same call to assemble, to gather, to come together, to hold one another accountable, to bear burdens with one another, to pray with one another, to spur one another on, to focus together on 
not on, not on how we feel about what's going on in our lives, but on what is objectively and unchangeably real and true about our God. So that, so that we don't allow our feelings to interpret falsely for us who God is and, and, and what the meaning of the trials and circumstances of life are. Your feelings are bad teachers, false teachers, poor guides. They will lead you astray. Don't listen to them. Come, focus, and listen to your God. Don't get slogged down. Let his living, active word take your thoughts captive and tune your heart to praise him, no matter what's going on. Because the reality is, no matter what's going on, God is sovereign over it all, and God is good in it all. Nothing he does is bad. Nothing he ordains is bad. And he's with us in it all. And he's using it, he's working it all together for our good. That's what's real. In Judah, the locusts had literally destroyed everything. And Joel, full of the Holy Spirit and understanding how that disaster was a foreshadowing of the greater disaster that was to come when the day of the Lord came, he knew. And he proclaimed, here's the most important things that the people of God can do. And again, notice the urgency here. It's more important than anything in your life. It, it, it matters no matter who you are, whether you're an infant or an adult. And it matters more than, than the most important earthly activities like, like weddings matter. To come before your God. In these times when, when God's providence brings trials which prefigure his ultimate and eternal purposes of judgment, here's what the people of God must do. We must first blow the trumpet and sound the alarm and call this dying world to turn from their sin and to God to find mercy through faith in Jesus alone before it's too late so that they can be saved and delivered from the wrath of God that is to come. It is to come more certainly than the sun will sometime rise and, and break through these clouds. And then secondly, we must blow the second trumpet and be summoned ourselves into action to assemble, to gather, to focus past our circumstances, past our feelings about our circumstances, past our own fallible interpretations of God's character in the midst of those circumstances in order to exalt and magnify and sing praises to the God who is, regardless of the circumstances, regardless certainly of our feelings, regardless of our finite, fallible, fleshly interpretations. God is who God is. How we feel about him doesn't change what is true about him. So what we have to do when we're faced with brutal, painful trials, when our flesh and the devil tempt us to question his majesty and his goodness, what we have to do is to come together to him. Fix our minds on the unchanging reality of who he is and always will unchangeably be. So that 
whatever our lot, we can learn by his grace to say, it is well with my soul. And then having turned away from self and having fixed our gaze on his glory, we can devote ourselves to the purpose for which he, the Lord of glory, God the Son, came here to give himself up in order to save lost sinners. So that in the middle of the hardships and trials that have driven us to find our rest in him, we can call others out there in this world to turn from their sin, from their hard-heartedness, from their self-serving pride, and come to him and find mercy and grace and steadfast love and everlasting rest and eternal life because none of this is going to last and everything that's going on out there is proof of it, is foreshadowing of it, is birth pangs to show there's coming a day when it will all be shaken once more and then brought down. And all that will remain is the new heavens and the new earth. And if your name's not written in the book of life that guarantees you citizenship there, then the eternity of misery that awaits unrepentant sinners who refuse to come to God, that unfathomably eternal agony will make every single trial in this world seem like nothing. This is impossible to even contemplate how urgent it is that we sound the alarm and call people to turn. So, in the first 16 verses of Joel 2, the the message is loud and clear. Through his prophet, God reveals that all of the present disasters in this world, including the one in Joel's day, were, were sovereignly ordained by God to prefigure the greater and coming judgment of the Lord on the day of the Lord when Christ will come and pour out final judgment in this world. And until then, we should view all of the trials and tribulations of life in this sin-cursed world, especially the agonizingly painful ones, as sovereignly ordained birth pangs and portents of that final judgment that is to come. And we should hear them as trumpet blasts, warning louder and louder of this coming day of the Lord. And we should also recognize that he summons us to constantly gather in order to magnify him and exalt him and give praise to him and be strengthened by him as the God who was and is and who is to come. So listen, as we all together go through hard and painful and difficult and excruciating things in our lives, are we not certain as, as those who have been saved by the grace of God, are we not certain in the midst of the most painful trials that the all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal God knows what he's doing in these circumstances? Are we not confident that no matter what's going on in our lives, he not only knows better than we do what's going on, he not only knows what he's doing, are we not also confident that everything that he's doing is good? Even when it doesn't feel good? And do we ever 
have any actual cause objectively to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to doubt his faithfulness? Has he not been so merciful to us? Has he not been good and faithful and loving and gracious to us? It's so easy, isn't it, to complain to him? to bicker in self-pitying discontentment, to grumble like the Israelites did in the wilderness in the book of Exodus and Numbers. Because there was no food, because there was no water, because whatever food and water he gave didn't meet their expectations and standards. So they grumbled. Even though he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, even though he had promised them and was leading them towards a promised land that flowed with milk and honey. Yet they grumbled, and I am just like them, only it's worse. Because every time I grumble and I complain, because I don't like what he's given me today, I'm forgetting the greater deliverance even that he's given me in Christ and the greater promised land that he's leading me to through the wilderness of this life. He's given me Christ. Christ gave me his life. He was literally whipped and beaten and crucified to death for me so that I wouldn't have to face the eternal judgment and wrath of God that's coming on the day of the Lord. He delivered me from a fate far worse than Egypt. He promised me an eternally better land in the new heavens and the new earth. He's been leading me there patiently, graciously, every single day, saying, here's your manna. And I go, but I don't like the manna, God. I want something else. The trials of life in this world are always sovereignly ordained trumpet calls to summon us to come to him for every need and to confess him to be sovereign and good in every need. And we should interpret the trials of life in that exact same way to the world around us. Trumpets of warning for them to turn from self-serving sin into the Lord. We've got to tell people now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's great patience. Now is the time for sinners to turn and come to Christ. Didn't Jesus say in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. That's what he will do. If you come to him, he won't let go of you. He won't lose you. And when that final day of wrath comes, he will raise you up past it and deliver you from it. One day the whole universe will be consumed by the judgments of God. He will create a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness remains. And if you have faith in him, he will raise you up to that eternal life. This is all that matters, right? He is all that matters because eternity is all that matters. This is just a blip. This is just the blink of an eye. 
Whatever trials and troubles we face, they're momentary light afflictions, in Paul's own words, compared to the eternal weight of glory that Christ has guaranteed for us in eternity. And besides the relative insignificance of our trials now compared to that glory, the things that we suffer now are God's good tools to train us to trust him, to keep following him, to keep walking through the wilderness by his leading without grumbling, without discontentment, to keep heading towards the promised land. And they serve as that urgent call for us to call others out of the darkness and into the light. So let's stop there for today. We'll continue on chapter 2 next week. But pray with me today for the faith to persevere and with our eyes fixed on Christ to be able to run with endurance and be faithful to sound the alarm until the very end when he comes. Nothing, nothing in this world matters more. Nothing in our lives matters more. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, again, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for what it reveals to us both about your judgments and the holiness of your righteousness by which you will one day make everything that has gone wrong in this world to be right. You will not allow any evil to exist anymore in your creation. It will all be brought under your wrath. It will all be dealt with. It will all be swept away. And Father, we thank you for what your word teaches us about your great mercy by which you have saved us, spared us, delivered us, given us hope, given us a future, given us promises that are precious and very great through faith in Christ Jesus, given us Christ Jesus himself as our great Savior and as our great Lord. God, would you help us to trust him in the trials? Would you give us gratitude? Would you give us the peace that surpasses all understanding? Would you help us take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ? Father, would you help us to walk by faith and not by sight? Give us this grace, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing page 11, Jesus is mine.